Welcome to Daystar Rising. I'm Keith Murray. And I'm Julie Murray. Join us for conversations about destiny, discernment, and the new spiritual paradigm. Hey everyone, welcome to Daystar Rising. Good to have you all back again for another adventure, another uh, mm-hmm. endeavor into conversation and exploration. How are you, Miss Julie? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. Doing good. After uh, sleeping like 13,000 hours last night. I slept a while. Yeah, longer <laughs> than I normally do. I was just really tired for some reason. I guess. Went to bed at 7. Got uh, up at, what, uh, 8? Maybe not that. <laughs> I wasn't sleeping the whole time I was in there. I but. see. So we're here with our dogs, and they're all basically sleeping. Feisty Ann is nodding off, sitting up. She'll be fast in dreamland soon, which is good. Well, one of the things we've been uh, pondering, rolling over, kicking around for a while, that's the way a lot of times these things uh, happen, is that somewhere, often I think, in the night, mm-hmm. a seed gets planted, like the song Sound of Silence, a vision that was planted in my brain. I think often that's what happens is that in the night there's some sort of a revelation seed or a download that takes place. It happens pretty often. I think these downloads for me usually are while I'm asleep and often in deep sleep. And there'll be just a little bit of it that's conscious, but it's like it takes time, sort of like planting a seed in the ground. There's been a seed planted. And it's sort of in the night or in the unconscious realm, but over time, as the light, as the day star, as the as the sun begins to shine light on that seed, it comes up more and more to the surface and grows and begins to expand where you can see it and analyze it and consider it on a, I don't know, a much more complete level. Conscious level. Yeah, that kind of has been happening to me a lot, too. Um, I, and I've noticed that there's a difference. When I'm thinking on greater themes, spiritual things, and wanting to understand more how the universe works in certain aspects, which sounds lofty. You know, it sounds lofty and philosophical, and I'm just go trying to be all deep and all that. But it's really not that. I mean, I'm curious about how all that works and I always have been. I'm fascinated. There's a scientist part of me that's fascinated. But a good scientist wants to understand the mysteries of the universe. But the reason that they want to understand them is really to make the practical living easier, more effective. Like where they actually live and breathe and dwell, they want to understand better how to get from point A to point B without all of these loop-de-loops and detours and failures and false starts and misfires and all of that. And I'm like that too. I want to understand my part in something, the greater thing of how it works, how I can interact with it. And so the more I think about all those things in a positive sense, not in a desperate clutching sense of thinking I've got to figure this out, but just a curiosity and an openness and a desire for living truth to come in and make me better as I have this mindset through my life, through my day, and the days compound into weeks, months, years, then I've noticed over the last year and a half, typically now when I wake up, there is like a one sentence, one or two sentence thought in my head that forces me awake, that I'm rushing to get down. And this is funny, it is so important to me and I've made such a habit of getting it down 
that a lot of times I don't have any paper up there. I've just got a roll of toilet paper to blow my nose or whatever, and I'll be grabbing the roll of toilet paper and trying to write on it with a pen just to get the thought down because it's like you said, there's this little bobbing thing like a buoy or, or a floaty, like when you fish up on the surface. But then there's this Titanic iceberg down underneath a lot of times. There's a little thought that just comes through from sleep. But then if, when I write it down, a lot of times a lot more information just starts coming through related to that one sentence. And dots start connecting and you feel like you know it, that you've known it already. It feels familiar, but you didn't know it in the way that you're actually assembling it. And I, I think there are just different stages of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. There's just different stages of it. And I think in our culture today, basically, and we've talked about this before, that people just think that they're going to go learn something. This idea or this thing that they memorize, kind of like people memorize scripture. And I'm not saying that's not that that's a bad thing. But the point is to go so far beyond that. You know, Orthodox Jews send their boys to yeshiva school. And it's typical for, is it four years old? By the time that they're four years old, I think, it's very young that they can say entire passages of Scripture, like big chunks and blocks of Scripture from memory. Mm -hmm. And so they're starting out the four-year-olds with memorization. Mm -hmm not ending up with memorization so that the alchemy of all of that knowledge combined with a desire for learning, a desire for transformation, all of that can start to bubble up and incubate in them. And our society just thinks you run out and memorize things. They just want a book. They just want a tape series thinking that if they just get the idea in their head, somehow that's going to be the key that quickly unlocks all this. But you have to chew it chewing the cud. The clean animals in the Torah were the ones who chewed the cud and split the hoof. And so there's this idea of ruminating and chewing on something while walking in a divided way in the sense that you're dividing, you're learning how to tell the difference between right and wrong and what is sacred and what is not sacred. And clean that, and unclean, pure from contaminated. Yeah. And that's just, you know, people say this is about food. No, no. Food is where it starts. Food is like the memorization thing. Um, food is where it gets, the idea gets in there. And then as you really sit and chew on this and it gets down into your being and you start digesting it, that's when you extract the nutrients from the food and put it to use in your body. Essentially it's rehearsals, just like sure. the festivals. Many of them, as we've talked about before, are called in the scripture in the English it'll say a holy convocation in the Hebrew that's going to be a mikra kodesh not only does it mean a holy gathering but it also has this meaning of a holy rehearsal mm -hmm. and so these things are what I refer to as living parables mm -hmm. whether you're talking about the subject of eating and kosher eating and that sort of thing it's designed to be living parables and it tells us actually the purpose of it, and it doesn't say that the purpose of those things are health reasons. Mm -mm. That is the big assumption, and most people can never, no matter how many years mm -mm. maybe they've spent doing it, they still revert back to the carnal viewpoint of it. But it is to, certainly that part is important, and you have to start there, but it's to transform the way you see and the way you think, to develop your senses 
to exercise those senses, as Paul said, so that you can begin to become more and more spiritually efficient. Your eyesight, your discernment increases to where you can discern the bed bug line. And we've talked about that before, I think. I'm sure that I have in the past in some of the Torah studies that when I studied art in the past, my teacher used the, uh, the analogy of this term bed bug line. He's the only person I've heard use that. Usually mm. people call it the uh, terminator line or termination point oh, or something like that. I didn't know like that. that. I thought bed bug was common. Maybe among that school or that mm. particular lineage, his teacher, I think, called it that, but I haven't read it or heard anyone mm. else use that term, but it's a helpful idea. What that basically means is like when you're, when you're doing a drawing, first I was trained to start out and do the outline, the contour of separating the, the object from what's not the mm -hmm. object, the background, basically. And it's just like a, a coloring book mm -hmm. drawing, Lines. pretty much. And then the next stage of that was to go through and separate the areas of true light from true shadow, which is basically like in Genesis, the mm -hmm. way this, all of this, mm -hmm. the, the order of making a drawing or painting. Sometimes that can be very difficult to discern. And sometimes it can be counterintuitive because the assumption often is, well, if a value is dark, then that makes it a shadow. Not necessarily. Sometimes and, and often you may have a darker halftone, what's called a halftone, that's not really light and it's not really shadow. You might assume that it's shadow and it's really not. Other times there are lighter value areas that you would assume, well, it's light in value, so it couldn't be shadow. Yeah, it could, and sometimes it is. You can't always tell. Now, usually the darker the value, it's going to be shadow, but not always. But this idea of the bed bug line is going in there and discerning because there is an exact, precise, specific point where shadow ends and halftone begins, and that was called the bed bug line because the myth, I don't know if this is true or not, but supposedly a bed bug will always stay on the shadow side of a form or line. And so that was called the bed bug line. Hmm. And you go in there and you establish that to break down everything between light and shadow. And then later we're going to, we create the nuance and the, the subtle blending of the two. Well, and that's interesting. You're the way you paint, what you tell me is classical realism is painting how the eye sees it. Yeah, trying to trying to paint how the eye sees it as opposed to like photo realism where you're putting in all of the sharper details that a photo might capture and it's the way the camera sees is not exactly the way the eye sees, even though obviously there are similarities. The way I would say that to a layperson who doesn't know about the way you paint, um, like I've observed, is there's just, and I don't mean because you're nearsighted or farsighted, you can take someone even who's 20-20 and their vision will be sharper. They'll see more than someone who has poorer vision or poor vision. But even the way the person with 20-20 vision sees is going to be different than the way a camera sees. And they are going to miss, I think the way that the eye sees, they see more as a whole. They just kind of, the eye pans through there and typically sees more as a unified whole of something. They're not 
going through and looking at all the details and seeing all the details in sharpness because where they're standing in relation to the light, in relation to the object, there are just certain parts of the painting that they're not going to see. It's going to be softer, fuzzier. Like you're saying, there's going to be more light and shadow that's going to interplay in the way the human eye sees than in the way the camera sees, even though there's still a bed bug line with the camera. And the reason that you're probably going into this and I'm going into this is how very apropos to the spiritual walk and to spiritual discernment. Because the novice to painting will come in and just say, well, it's either in light or it's either in shadow. Well, if it, well, which is like they, we do with everything. It's either good or it's bad. It's either... Polarized, yeah, stinking, yes, and seeing. Polarized, yeah. yeah. It's either right or it's wrong. And let me just say at the outset, I'm not saying that there's not a right and wrong. But whatever God decides objectively and in his jurisdiction and in his truth, whatever he decides is right and wrong is the right and wrong. We create concepts and ideas based on what we've been taught and even based on right principles, we still spin our own spin around it and distort all that. But someone, a novice coming in would look at your setup and say, they would look at the brightest part, like that's really in the sun part and say, well, that's in light. And then this part over here is in shadow. Well, yes, anybody who can see can see that. But as you go to paint, as you go to halakha, as you go to walk it out, and I'm not sure what halakha actually means in Hebrew, but it's the concept of yeah. walking out. Okay, I thought so. As you go to walk it out, it's one thing to look at a setup and look at somebody else paint a painting and have them explain certain things to you and how they do this and how they do that, and it's all very fascinating, whatever. But then you get to turn around and go home and not have to futz with it. But if you get into painting or you get into writing, or you get into weight training, or you get into anything you get into, as you learn its lessons, you're going to get into nuance. You're going to get into, this is the general standard rule, except in these cases. I mean, there's just, with anything you do, you'll have a teacher that says, now, this is a standard rule, like for plants and landscaping. Typically, we plant these plants here and in this kind of soil unless A, B, and C, these conditions are here. And then it's a little bit of a crapshoot. You just do the best you can. And it just seems like people in our society want things to be clear cut, cut and dried, like you're saying, more polarized. But this is not how the human experience unfolds. And I think that part of our great discontent and what we're calling unhappiness and Maybe even the anxiety, the underlying desperation and anxiety that people feel is this mental, this belief system that we have that things should be cut and dried and that the truth is obvious. And, and if, if we're living according to the truth that we believe, life should not be messy and shouldn't be hard. And we might not say that, but I think that that's where part of our angst and our anxiety comes from is that when we actually go to live our lives, we just find that it's a lot more complicated. It's a lot harder. You know, you go and you listen to a preacher preach or you listen to a motivational speaker speak, and they give you these principles that sound wonderful in the... Theoretical. Well, and yeah, in the theoretical and in the little arena where you're learning it, where no rubber's having to meet the road or whatever, just like you're saying, theoretical. But then when you go to take these concepts into your everyday life, 
you're just going to have to work them out the best you can in the muck, in the mire, in the BS, in the stuff that makes sense and the stuff that doesn't. And it's almost like when you tell somebody, particularly a religious person, that you're going to have to get down in the muck and mire and in the nuance and in the light and shadow of your life trying to work out these principles. They get agitated like, well, God said this and it just should be this way. It is this way. But unfortunately for you, you're not right now an inhabitant of heaven living 10 feet from God where everything is ordered perfectly. You are in this subjective experience seeing through your perspective with your light and shadow, your Cain and Abel, your ego and your spirit all in you trying, vying for position and, and trying to have the spirit be preeminent, not the ego. You're, you're learning and you're growing and you're reaching for God, but you're going to have to deal with the nuance and with the shadow. And rather than making you weaker or making your faith less strong when you do that, you are actually doing what the scriptures say and you're working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's a part that he worked out for you that you couldn't, but there's a part for you that you have to work out that he can't because that's your jurisdiction and that's your overcoming. Whether we're talking religious or not religious, I mean, we have to learn how to live in the world and determine our own level of joy and fulfillment and how we're going to see things. And that state of empowerment and sovereign power doesn't come without wrestling. Mm -hmm. I remember, I think last time or the time before, and I should have looked up the guy's name so I could give him credit for the quote. You know, I'll probably botch it, but hopefully you kind of get the idea. Essentially, the quote is that tyrants intentionally eliminate nuance. Mm -hmm. And um, that's sort of the way the quote goes. But I remember also talking that the majority of people, um, sometimes they do it on purpose, but a lot of times it's not necessarily intentional. It's just that they haven't developed their eye right. to see the nuance because you have to. You don't just you don't just step up to an easel and paint the Mona mm -mm. Lisa the first time. Mm -mm. Da Vinci had to develop his eye or anybody who does anything. You have to develop that and learn to see the nuance. Now, the slippery slope is, and there always is one, <laughs> that... You've got people within various denominations and religions and the Messianic movement, and it, it's pretty bad, the Messianic movement, a lot of hair splitting mm -hmm. on relatively minor things. There is, I don't know what it is about mankind often and human nature that so many people spend so much energy and time and money and focus on eliminating the gnats while they're swallowing down the camels. Yeah. A total reversal of the way it should be. Right. We need to focus upon the bigger things. Yeah, something right. that's clearly a camel. And yes, let's try to get as many of the gnats out as we can, but not to where mm -hmm. our blind spots are so big that we're missing the elephant in the room and missing. That is the same thing that was happening in the first century. Just this tunnel vision and a disproportionate way of seeing the world. Mm -hmm. Yeshua said that so many of the, the rulers and people had neglected the weightier matters of the law. And he was trying to put things in a proper proportion of, yeah, do all these little things and tithe on the mint that happens to grow outside in your yard and all that. Yeah, do that. 
but you you shouldn't have neglected the more important, <laughs> no, right. the weightier matters right. of justice, justice, mercy, and faith. faith. Yeah, yeah. You want to jump in on that? Well, I mean, it's there's just so much to say about it. And I mean, from religious to not religious, I see people just focusing down like little Mr. Magoo's or something. I don't know. Maybe that's wrong. He... I don't know that he could see very well, but they're just okay. <laughs> You're laughing at that's me like that's thing. not really appropriate. <laughs> so, well, they, it may be pretty appropriate actually, but yeah, he had a definite eyesight problem. Well, and I mean, it's like you just see them kind of. And I used to be have a little bit more of a perfectionist problem when I would go to create something. And I think that's fairly common, but some people are so tied up, and it's you'd almost call them OCD on all these little things in their life that just kind of drive them nuts like ants crawling on them and they just can't stand it. And, and you're like, well, why get so bent out of shape over these little things when these big gaping holes of logic inefficiency are just, it's almost like running in August, running your air conditioner on full blast with your doors and windows open, but then running around worried about something that is the size of a pinprick being open to the outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the thing, the discrepancy that I see so much with so much religious teaching that's around me is we're going to fight to the death over these theological ideals and we won't help the widow who doesn't have enough to eat and she's in our congregation or we won't give a coat to somebody passing through our town trying to get somewhere else and it's winter and they don't have one. There's always these things in front of us. We fight to the death over these theological issues and we lie when we go back to work during the week and it's not Sunday. We lie big and we lie little. We lie to ourselves and we lie to other people. We lie to our animals. We lie to God because we don't understand exactly what we're doing but there's this low-level anxiety and desperation and just sense of another shoe falling over us. And none of the spiritual, so most of the spiritual leaders that I hear out there that are in the world having guardianship over people, mentorship over people, they are just not usually addressing the weightier matters. They are perpetuating their denomination's belief system. Yeshua said, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me water. And when I was sick, you came to see me. And in prison, you came to visit me. And the people are like, well, Lord, when... <laughs> I just get... I just get emotional about this. It's They didn't know. And they said, when did we do this? And he said, when you did it to the least of these. The people around you. You know, and I'm not saying don't sleep in your desire to go just give all your stuff away to people. I mean, you got to use wisdom. I'm just saying that we have everything backwards. We will defend, and I'm not Baptist. I'm just using them because we're in the Bible Belt and it's convenient. We will defend our Baptist theology, but our own bowels of compassion don't get stirred up at Walmart when we see somebody or in the parking lot and they need help and we can help them you know, we're all holy and or feel religious in church on Sunday, but then in the middle of the week, when there's somebody that we could help or somebody that knew that we could welcome with a smile, we withhold our power and we withhold our compassion. And we think we're religious people because we go to church and we stand for 
these theological issues, and that's just bogus bullshit. I'm sorry. We're going to have to look at our real life, and this is a characteristic of the, the new spiritual paradigm, getting real. I used to have a problem with the word religion. I used to say, I'm not real religious anymore. I'm spiritual, but I don't really have a problem with religion. If you use it in its proper context, it's a framework of working out your spirituality. But I said the other day, we were having a conversation, and I said, you know, for me, it's really about my curious question to people would be, well, you know, you're telling me all these religious things, your religious beliefs, but how do you experience God? And when you ask I've asked people before, not trying to put them on the spot, but I've actually asked people before in maybe naiveness or maybe just curiosity, okay, so how do you experience God? Like when God's presence, when you experience God's presence, what's that like for you? How do you experience that? And they stall because they can talk all day about their religious belief system, but many, and I would say a majority of people I've asked, just stall and look at me like they don't know what I'm talking about. I concur. And that's a problem. Yeah, it is. Well, this idea of our society and, well, not just ours, most of the world, too, because it's a world way of thinking, and we've talked about before, about the tree of knowledge, good, and evil consciousness. And if you're feeding upon that energy source, that's the way you tend to see the world is in terms of the a very polarized way. And I wanted to mention something you were talking about, uh, classical realism, that the idea is, in many ways, to try to paint something the way the human eye sees it, as opposed to something like photorealism, where you're painting something to try to make it look like a photograph. And a lot of people would assume that the photograph is going to be the more accurate representation. And sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't, because Ask yourself, have you seen photographs before where the pet or the person's eyes are red? Is that the way it really looks in nature? Not at all. Yeah. It's a distortion. Unless it's a spiritual truth. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Maybe they're bonded. Then sometimes a perspective, there will be a distortion in the perspective and mm -hmm. where it's really not true, but it mm -hmm. will, people say photographs don't lie. Yeah, they, they, they do. do and they can. And a lot of times a photograph will be blurrier than it actually mm -hmm. is, or it's too hard. The edges are harder than they actually exist in nature. And so one of our biggest enemies in every category is assumption. True. So people just automatically assume that things look, and, and if you pursue drawing or painting, working representational, trying to make things look as they do, you begin to realize that there is a wide chasm between how things really appear and the way often we think they, what mm -hmm. the, we think they look like. And so mm -hmm. we draw these inherited symbols usually mm -hmm. If we see a tree, we're not really looking objectively at the tree and we're just representing and we're telling that truth or what we think is the truth the way we think a tree is supposed to look. And so we draw two vertical sticks with a ball on top and we think that's a tree. Or we draw these, <laughs> if we're trying to draw a portrait and we draw these circles and uh, for eyes or these... <laughs> Stick figure. <laughs> and it's all symbols. Yeah. And this is the same way in every area of society. Yeah. And this is trying to wake people up. A lot of times it's just futile to even attempt to do it. A lot of times you're just, your words are just falling on the ground. 
You're going to get punched in the face <clears throat> with some people. Yeah, you could. And it's just not going to be an efficient use of your mm -hmm. time and energy to try to convince people. Like politics, for instance, practically everyone you run into has some pretty solid opinions. We are very polarized in that area regarding politics. A good portion of the people you talk to will also make statements. They'll say things like, well, I'm not really into politics and I don't really, I don't watch the news or any of that. But all of those people normally, I don't know, I, I'm trying to think if I've ever run into an exception. They think that they still have an accurate picture of everything. And admittedly, they don't really pay attention, but they don't realize that they have been conditioned their whole life. If they walk by a TV screen or at the airport or whatever, all of these things in their family and right. their culture influence them. Sure. And they have these real solid opinions about things that are based upon misinformation mm -hmm. many times or distortions and all of that. Storytelling. But even if you do bother to try to get yourself informed, it's like painting. And you have to detach from sides and from winning. The truth, the pursuit of truth has to be a higher value than winning the argument or debate. Or making peace. Yeah, it has to be higher than all of that. Yeah. And that's not an easy thing to do. And it ends up often the middle ground, the nuance shrinks and things begin to be very exaggerated toward the, the polar ends and the extremes. And so like if we're to be transparent without guile, like uh, Yeshua said of Nathaniel in John chapter 1, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. And this is what is said about the 144,000 in the book of Revelation chapter 14, that no guile was found in their mouth. It's a dishonesty in some way. Again, with this nuance, society normally and religion and politics sees everything in terms of these extremes of light and shadow. And a lot of times that's completely backwards and mischaracterized, but there's a wide spectrum from one of those extremes to the mm -hmm. other. And you have to develop your eye to look at those things, not to ignore the extremes mm -hmm. of the black and the mm -hmm. white and all of that, but to develop your eye to also see the nuance and realize that everything is a spectrum. Mm -hmm. Whether we're talking about salvation, the subject of salvation that we can get into sometime, whether we're talking about the subject of honesty, People would say, well, it's either a truthful statement or it's a lie. Um, yes and no. There are degrees of honesty. Yeah. And there's degrees of deception and lying. Depending on what you're talking about. There's degrees of righteousness. Yeah. Yes. There's degrees yeah. of sin and of unrighteousness. There's degrees of uncleanness and degrees of cleanness and purity. Well, and many variables go into an outcome of where you actually plot yourself on that spectrum. Many variables go into that. And, I mean, people will deal in absolutism, this or that, when they are trying to win an argument often or put you on the defensive. So you're saying ABC. And what's interesting about the nuance is that they will utilize the shadow in a guiling, in a deceitful, in, yeah, way of guile to squeamy around and just to win an argument. So 
they may not be conscious of what they're doing exactly and how they're doing it, but they are skating and skirting and swimming in the nuance at that point. They're just doing it with a deceitful motive. Mm -hmm. So there's a very great difference in someone who's moving through nuance with a deceitful motive to perpetuate a lie or a position and ignore the truth or whatever, and someone who is looking at the nuance, trying to understand and come into a greater awareness and practice of the truth. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's nuance itself is a neutral objective fact in most subjects. You'll say, is the sky blue? And you've got some people who will say, okay, and if you say, is, does the sky look blue? Is the, is the color of the sky blue? Lots of people say yes. And you can tell when you've got a person who has worked with truthful nuance, when they look at you and kind of grimace a little bit and say, the sky looks blue right now, but depending on the cloud cover, depending on the humidity, depending on all these factors. What time of day. Yes. They're going, and, and people a lot of times will get irritated with these people and say, you're just making things complicated. Just answer the question. Well, if someone's avoiding answering a question because they're being shady, that's one thing. And they don't like the truth and they don't want to own up to the truth. But if someone is actually trying to stand in the light of truth and saying, I don't know, or I don't have enough information, or how long do you have, kind of like Jordan Peterson, he gets questions all the time where people are like, yes, or this or that, yes or no. And he's like, I can't, I can't answer it that way because all of these variables go into the situation that creates the circumstances out of which I'm going to answer your question. And so these kind of have to be addressed and covered because if I say yes without explaining, it's not completely truthful yes because you don't understand all the things surrounding the yes. It could just as easily be no if some of these other conditions shift a bit. And so when we're talking about light and shadow, typically I don't see people value nuance. You said we have to train our eye to see the nuance. Well, first, before we can do that, we have to value nuance for the sake of truth, not for the sake of making things complicated or more shady. Yeah, I would maybe reword that and say we have to value truth enough right. to develop our eye to see the nuance. Yeah, because nuance exists. And whether we're dealing with politics or religion, a particular theology or whatever it is, if you have to mischaracterize the yeah. other side, or if you have to eliminate some nuance to make your case stronger or to win, no, it's not. That's true. dirty pull. Yeah, you've mishandled the truth. It is a mis. It's it's a, a guile. It is a, a deceit. A it's a dishonesty yeah. on some level. Yeah. And even if your basic value or principle, let's say it's an argument about uh, something like gay marriage or abortion or something like that. I obviously am totally against abortion, and I'm against gay marriage, even though that's now a reality. But if I'm arguing or debating, which most of the time is not going to do any good anyway, most of the time you're just making matters worse by doing that. But, but if you're in a formal debate... Yeah, but yeah. nevertheless, let's yeah. say I'm arguing on the pro-life, anti-abortion side. That does not, just to win... Mm -mm. I, it is wrong and deceitful, and I'm still a liar, 
if I am mischaracterizing right. the position of the other person, I agree. or if I'm twisting facts to strengthen my side, I that's agree. still not right. I agree with that. It's not clean. The end does not justify the means if the means are shady. I mean, you know where you you know where you're standing, and you know what you support. But there is a way to stand in the light, and even if you find yourself standing in shadow, the question for me is, well. Am I intending to be in shadow? Why am I in shadow? Am I in shadow? Because this is where the search for truth led me, and I just happen to be standing in a shadow that's a little murky because I can't get my bearings. Or am I in the shadow because I mischaracterized what someone said to win an argument or to to continue self-comforting, you know, telling comforting myself that I'm right. Mm -hmm. And so whatever I end up saying or doing in support of that position is justified. That's the wrong way to be in shadow. That is if, not just. No, it isn't just. And I mean, if you find yourself in shadow because you are seeking truth, and I'll guarantee you, nothing will put you into areas of shadowness more absolutely and more surely than seeking the truth and the journey for truth. Because you are going to dismantle so many of your assumptions that you've had, and that is going to cause you to go into questioning. You are going to get into questionable places, and it may be shadow to you and may not be a shadow to others. But you will go through areas of shadow, and admitting and being honest with the fact, I'm in shadow. I didn't seek to be in shadow specifically, but I asked for the truth. And I am trying, like you said with the bed bug line, I'm looking at this thing and I'm trying to determine where the shadow starts and where the light starts. And, you know, this conversation is probably complex enough and maybe I shouldn't throw this into the mix, but I'm going to have to because it's just too much there. Not all darkness is bad. Like you're saying with a painting. Not all shadow is, you might have areas where you think they're kind of light, but they're really kind of shadow. And we have our beliefs about what it means to be a light or to be a shadow and how the shadow is bad and the light is good. But in Genesis, it says that God created evening and morning and it was the first day. He created the darkness and he created the light. And at the end of it all, it was very good. And abiding in the shadow of his wings under the protection. There's a lot of that. And God deals in thick darkness. Yeah. I don't know where that scripture is. You probably do. I don't. But it's there are a lot of things in there that talk about the darkness almost in, in a sacred way. There is a sacredness to the feasts. And why bother saying on full moon or 15th of the month or having these things fall on a full moon, some of them? Why is that even relevant? other than you being out into the darkness, looking up at the full moon and counting the calendar right. So there is a sacredness to the darkness that God divided the right way according to his pattern. Not all darkness is bad. Not all darkness is evil. Darkness is darkness. And there is truth in the sacred darkness. And you may not apprehend it all. You may not apprehend all the truth in the light. Mm -hmm. But there are symbols here of what is conscious, like being noonday, where the light is directly overhead and it's as good as it's going to get, as far as the sun goes, and then things being in graduating down from that bright light into the deep night, which is like the way the brain does with consciousness, subconsciousness, 
deep, you know, unconscious and deep un unconscious. It's like the, the ocean, all these layers of the ocean. These are all symbols to show that there are levels of things in humanity that we are not, not everything we know, even scientists will tell you, like if they could somehow hypnotize you or put your brain up to scans where they could see you've stored information in different lobes of your brain. You're taking all these bits of information in per second, and it's stunning. It is, it'll stun you how many pieces of information, I forget what it was, but it was an untold amount. Every second, your brain is taking this in and storing it. Well, you can't hold all of that in your conscious awareness, or you would just be climbing the walls and writing with a Sharpie. That's too much information. So the brain and the mind, two different things, have a way of God set it up so that it organizes where most of your stuff is in the unconscious. You know, Freud and Jung talked about the archetypes and the dream symbology and all of that that comes out, these strange symbols. Well, they're coming out of our unconscious. We're not conscious of them, but they're there and they come out. They are, a, and my whole point going into this is, what is in the unconscious, what is in the darkness is, if it's true, it's just as much a truth as what's in the light that's true. We spend so much time running from anything that looks shadowy or dark, that alone doesn't make it evil. Yeah, it depends. And just like if something's unconscious, that's not necessarily a problem either. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is, though. A lot of things that are in the realm of the subconscious that people their are not aware of is yeah. a problem. Yeah, but their practices. It's designed like. For example, I have a car that is a stick shift. And for those of you guys who have one or have had vehicles or driven one, at first, when you're first trying to learn how to drive a stick shift, it's awkward. You have to learn where the gears are and a balance of putting your foot down on the clutch and letting it out as you... And telling and, yourself, do this now and do this now. And you're and trying to watch yeah. for traffic and, and all of this stuff and... <laughs> You're trying to pay attention to things, and it's very awkward mm -hmm. and difficult at first. But while you sleep that night, your mind's going to begin to assimilate that information, and then the next day gets a little bit easier. And then, you know, a few weeks, a couple, two or three weeks maybe, you realize you've got a drink in one hand, you're eating a hamburger, and you're changing the radio station... <laughs> and you you just realize your hands are and your feet are working and you haven't even given it a conscious thought. Yeah. That's yeah. the way it's, there's a benefit in that. But the problem is like when we're talking about a lot of things that are unconscious, it's built upon assumption. And the right. people think, well, my opinion about such and such is objective and they think that they haven't been influenced by the news media, by a religious system, or yeah. by an educational system. Right. That is, um, you are really far gone. Probably most people are in that category. That's right. Sorry yeah. to say it, but if you have the belief, and I've run into so many people that have, and I'm sure you guys have too, that they actually believe that they're coming at things from a very objective, unbiased, they think that they themselves have, uh, they'll, they'll use these little cliches that, that they'll throw at you. They actually think they come up with them themselves even. That type of thing in the unconscious is not good. I agree. 
And you need to, to pull these things out and be willing to look and try to pull these things out in the light and examine them and say, okay, is this true or is this not true? And where's the bad bug line? Are, are all liberals evil or all conservatives evil? Do, are we just placed in this term hate Right. On anybody who disagrees with us, yeah, basically. or we want to win, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna use all of these words and terminologies just to demonize or mischaracterize people so that we can win or we can feel better about ourselves or call people pagans or whatever it might be. Yeah, uh, a lot of that kind of stuff. Fanatics. And yeah. a lot of that is just not just the weightier matters of the law, starting out with justice. That is, as uh, Gamaliel said, you know, does our law judge any man without first hearing him, looking shouldn't. at the facts and the right. evidence? Well, we shouldn't. If we're if we're honest, just, objective people, we shouldn't just condemn people, Mm-mm. especially without looking at any evidence, just making snap judgments and thinking these bad thoughts about people. People or viewpoints or anything like that. There are some things that need to be in, in the light that typically aren't, like you're saying, our self-sabotaging behavior. You know, there are wounds that are very largely unconscious and beliefs that have formed over those wounds very largely unconscious. And then out of those beliefs that got formed over wounds, we have created a system of habits that is the bedrock of our self-sabotage. And so those things usually happen in early childhood and get developed through our formative years These things need to be brought into the light. They're not meant to stay in the dark. They form in the dark, but they're not meant to stay in the dark as we want to be conscious and come into our sovereign power. We're going to have to take those things and bring them into the light. I've used the analogy before. It's kind of like, and touched on it a while ago, an ocean. There are certain things that are meant to be on top of the ocean, like boats. They're meant to be on top of the ocean. But like the Titanic or different Spanish Armada ships that crashed or sank, they are not made to be intact as themselves and be under the water like that. So some things you don't want to bring up from the deep unconscious into the light. Like there are whole ecosystems at the bottom of the ocean that are made for the cold dark. They're made for that. That's their environment. And if you actually bring them up, they'll die. They just won't work because they're not made for the light and they're not made for the surface. But, you know, the wrecked ships are not made for the deep. They're made for the surface. And developing the discernment within yourself as you go to say, you know, there are some deep mysteries that maybe no matter how much I look for and I look at, I'm just not going to recognize it because that's in the spiritual deepness. And while I stand in a body, I'm just not going to be able to perceive all of that, even though I look at it straight. I don't have the spiritual eyes. I don't have, I don't, I can't see it for what it is, but I can definitely go into myself. And it seems like I'm always saying the same thing on each podcast. I can ask myself why I behave the way I behave, what's driving it, you know, the intentions, the motives, when that started, what the beliefs are that it's built upon. I can excavate and bring this wreckage up from the bottom of my own sub and unconscious. And you said something, while, and, and I should do that. That's my work in the world. Um, you said something about people. I was going to make the statement, and I don't remember exactly what you said. 
about coming along. I'm just trying to think of what you said. Assuming their own objectivity? Yes. Right. Um, and the thought process started in me. You know, if someone is coming and they're saying that to me, or, or they're, I can see that that's the case, that they've assumed that their own opinions and positions are the objective fact. I can know automatically that that's not true. And I can tell you why. Not only, it's like you said, not only because they're making an assumption blindly. Anybody that has really gone in deep to overturn all the rocks and look and see what's under it and question their own assumptions, their own beliefs, their own positions, they're going to have one underlying overarching trait that's going to come through and that's humility. They're going to lead with, man, there's so much I don't know. But I have figured Your out... caution. If, well, yes, and I figured out some stuff to enable myself to stand more on a firm foundation with truth. But as to a lot of this other stuff, I'm not going to just leap down into a judgment with everybody else that this is bad or this is wrong or this is right or this is good. I'm going to, like you said, be cautious in my judgment because I've been through my own paces enough to understand there are a lot of variables that go into this, and I don't reflect the nature of God by being rash or assumptive in my judgments and in my positions. That is not reflecting the nature of God. God knows himself. He knows himself. If he makes a quick decision, it's just and it's right, not because he just assumes it is. You know, and people would give me a strange look and say, yeah, but you're talking about God. However all of that came to be, I don't know, that's a deep mystery, but I can tell you one thing about God. He knows about stuff. He knows about himself. He understands his attributes. He understands his motives. He understands his values. He understands his environment. He understands it all. And if we are to reflect that godlike nature, you do have certainty, but not in your inherited beliefs. You have certainty that you will come out through the other side of that alchemy when you befriend the truth and you're not afraid or unwilling to look at any single thing in yourself or in your belief system. There comes this sovereign power that comes through that alchemy where you're certain within yourself that as you pursue truth, the spirit of truth will guide you into truth and will be with you and that you can be certain that you've got a firm foundation to stand on. It's not so much that you're certain that any one belief, any one theology you have is absolutely true. And that's the difference. That's, and it's hard to explain that to people. And they're like, well, then if that's not the source of your certainty, what is the source of your certainty? Well, that God is sovereign and his spirit of truth leads me into truth and I'm standing on a firm foundation and I own what I'm standing on. And if I do believe something wrong, I don't want to be there and God will take me out of that place to a more sure place. I don't, that's kind of the basis of the certainty. There's something, you know, we've probably talked about before that has to be drug out into the light. The majority of people that are listening that you will meet are driven by competition and conflict mm -hmm. because that's the tree the energy they're they're eating of but even if you're like you're arguing 
or in, in your mind or you're arguing with people about a principle and maybe you're right about the principle. But if you have to mischaracterize and impugn and demonize the other side to win, you are not in the light. No. You're not being no. honest and transparent and lucid and, and clean. Yeshua said to agree with your adversary quickly. If someone that has a different theology or a different political belief than you do, they say something that is right and true, and true. you should not deny it or say, well, but what about mm -mm. you should acknowledge what you said is right and true. And when he said, blessed are the peacemakers, he didn't add a caveat of, mm -hmm. well, unless they're liberals or unless right. they're of a different denomination Hindu, or religion. Buddhist. Right. He didn't do Atheist. that. And so seeing nuance, being able to see those things and being able to detach to where we have less and less prejudice and bias, then we can recognize, just as Paul did, and said, you know what? Even in a lot of your own writings, you know, they these authors recognize the truth about certain principles mm -hmm. that are correct. Mm -hmm. This idol over here, or this altar rather, to the unknown God, actually, you've got something right here. That's an axe, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, these things are in the scripture. They acknowledge, and Yeshua would, when he would acknowledge a truthful right statement or sure. position, even well, if they're an enemy. And that's the thing. You do not, if you are truly a devotee to the truth, you do not weaken your position by agreeing with any truth as it presents itself from any place, even out of the mouth of your enemy. If truth is what you're devoted to, you do not weaken your position by accepting it like a brother wherever you find it. You strengthen your position, and that's how you know what energy you are operating in. And when you do the contrary, when right. you have to twist or mischaracterize in some way to win the argument or the debate or whatever, you may feel like part of your emotions may, you may feel safer, you may feel more secure, powerful. and you may feel more powerful, but you are weakening your position. That's you right. are undermining That's your right. own self. That's right. You have brought more darkness into That's your right. soul and into your mind, That's and right. you see less your vision deteriorates every time you do this. And see, that's what should motivate you that I don't think people understand. Every time you push the truth aside because of who it comes from or what form it takes and you push it aside, you are getting further and further and further away from the light, further away from freedom, further away from your own power, and further away from the God who made you. Yeah, this is one of the things that if people put me on a stage and said, pretend that you're going to die very quickly and there's one thing that you want to make people, that somehow there's a magic wand here and we're just going to wave it and whatever it is, whatever concept and thing you say, we're just going to make it click in people's heads. This would be it. That truth, especially when religious people talk about truth, they just kind of relegate it to religious truth or theological truth or what they think is true theologically. Truth is the nature of God. 
truth is the nature of the Messiah. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He had on something that said faithful and true. And you can't, people get nervous when you start talking about the attribute. And I, it's more than. They think than, it's going to make them vulnerable well, and weak. And, and not it's just, the opposite. It is the opposite. But not just that. When you start talking about devoting yourself to truth, almost becoming a servant to truth, let me go even further and say what I really want to say. Worshiping the truth. You know, that can start to trigger some people. And I can, I can kind of feel it. Like, you know, worship God. If the very nature of God is that he is true, how are you committing idolatry by coming up under the shelter and shade and headship of any truth that you encounter in the world. I mean, if you go read about the bramble in Judges, the trees went out to anoint a king over them, and they asked a couple of different trees and a vine, and no, they had their own work to do, so they go to the thorn bush, the bramble, and he agrees, but he's like, but fire's going to come out from me and consume you, and for some crazy reason, they agreed to that. Well, to me, this is the deception. It's the they, they couldn't get a legitimate tree. They were trees themselves. They couldn't get a legitimate tree, something that was a tree to be a cover for them. So they go to a lesser thing, a thorn bush, that shouldn't even be compared with a tree, and it's a symbol of the curse in Genesis. The others were more concerned about fulfilling their purpose That's than having right. power. That's exactly right. And the thorn variety. bush that didn't have the fruit yep. was more motivated by having power yep. and being over other people. Well, and he didn't approach them to be king. Well, they appro true. In the story, they approached him, and he's like, well, if you're that stupid and fire come out and consume you, then okay, I'll be your king. And, and people read this story, and they're like, God, that judge's book is weird. That's all they come out away with. No, this is what we've done as a human race. We've taken refuge under lies, and we are not acknowledging, we're not seeing half the time that's what we're doing, but it's what we're doing. And then we wonder why we can't get prayers answered, why we can't heal our land and heal our relationships and heal our soul, why we don't have any power, why we're discontent. It's because you are not aligning to the truth wherever you find it, because Yes, the big cosmological truth of trying to understand the truth of the universe, that's too much for anybody. But you'll, keep, you'll hear me keep saying this. The truth that you absolutely can know is what's closest to you that you can start with. Start with that. Start with the seed and say, I told her this and I gave her this excuse and this reason why I couldn't help her. Was that true or was that a lie? Oh, it was a lie. There was some truth in it. There was some facts. But there was also, I totally shimmied that it was a I was deceitful because I just didn't want to take responsibility and say no and bear the consequence of my honest no often we don't want to bear the consequences of what our honest truth will get us and so we kind of get into a little deception because we don't want to be responsible for the truth in our own lives I get it but this is not the way to salvation and it's not the way to personal empowerment I'm just going to keep hitting this and hitting this and hitting this and hitting this. You think, people think that serving God according to their religion or their denomination and being a good person and knowing scripture is what this is all about. It isn't. If you won't stand up and be counted and suffer the consequences of the truth in your own life and your relationships and you want to say you're saved or you know God, then in terms of knowing God, I say bullshit and I call bullshit. Because if you won't deal in the truth, if you won't, you don't know God. Because that's the nature of God.
And, and sometimes I, I try to be comforting to people and I try to be accepting of people. But if we want to get into plain speaking of what the real problem is, this is the crux of the real problem. All right. Well, um, on that note. <laughs> on that preaching, <laughs> slapping, <yeah>. spanking. <laughs> well, I hope you guys have enjoyed the conversation today. I hope it's given you some things to think about. Not just that. I want to challenge all of us in this next week to try to walk in greater honesty and greater integrity. And if there is one of those moments with a coworker or a family member or whatever, and the easy thing to do sometimes is to be silent when you should speak or to shut up when you should be mm -hmm. silent and begin to know the difference between those two and to not hide your light under a bushel. We're to be lights in this world and let that light of truth shine. How is anything going to get any better unless yep. people start overcoming their fear about yep. disapproval? And that, it's not easy. I mean, I'll be the first to tell you that, but you, you're just going to have, you're going to have to bite the bullet, get out of your comfort zone. That's the only way to make that feeling of deep anxiety and misalignment and just the feeling of angst inside yourself start to dissipate. Because what's really happening inside yourself is that you're crossing yourself. You're crossing yourself with the truth. Your body is bearing with the uh, effects of that. And we're having anxiety problems. So you guys email us anytime you want at goldenparadigm at gmail.com. If you have any questions, by the way, that you would like us to maybe address in one of these podcasts, that'd be a good way to do it. Yeah, so anything else? Nope. All right. See you guys next time. See Thanks for listening. Bye.